You have been listening to another adventure of the saint, the Robin Hood of modern crime. And now here is our star, Vincent Price. Ladies and gentlemen, in a prejudice-filled America, no one would be secure in his job, his business, his church, or his home. Yet racial and religious antagonisms are exploited daily by quacks and adventurers whose followers make up the irresponsible lunatic fringe of American life. Refuse to listen to or spread rumors against any race or religion. Help to stamp out prejudice in our country. Let's judge our neighbors by the character of their lives alone and not on the basis of their religion or origin. This is Vincent Price inviting you to join us again next week at the same time for another exciting adventure of the saint. Good night. And uh, welcome back to another exciting episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Um, we have a very special treat today. Um, someone's come over to uh, join us on the podcast. I'm joined by, uh, my name is Dion Baya, and I'm joined by Victoria Price. How are you? I'm great. How is everything going? Everything's great. <laughs> yep. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day. Um, in the world, maybe not as wonderful, but today I feel very grateful and blessed. And I think whenever things are going on that are tough in the world, I try to at least begin with gratitude. Of so, course, yeah. And yeah. You, you have a new book out, The Way of Being Lost, a, yep. a road trip to uh, to my truest self, yeah, which is available now on uh, in bookstores. Yes, and exactly. And Amazon. Yep, indie bookstores, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. And a Kindle as well, and then it'll be an audio book in May. I just yes, finished. I, that was one of my questions. I was yeah. going to say, were you going to record an audio book? I just did. I just finished it. Oh, that's so lovely. That was exciting. I was telling uh, Victoria before the podcast that uh, I'm a very slow reader, and your book was the fastest book I've ever read. I read it in 48 hours, just sped through it, and the whole time I was l- hearing you read it to me mm. almost so i was almost like so that was my next thing i was like i would love to hear it again having you you know oh, so that's that's awfully exciting that you're going to do a, you know an audio book yeah i just finished recording it and it's interesting i'd recorded an audio book before but not my own yeah. and it's weird reading your own words yeah. you know and but somebody once told me the first time i recorded an audio book that an audio book is the most intimate conversation you can ever have with a stranger and i love that if you think about yeah. it it's so true and i listen to audio books all the time when i'm driving when i'm walking and it's true. It's like they're sitting there. People you don't know are sitting talking in your ear and you feel like you get to know them so yeah. well. Yeah, and it's, 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 did you find any, I mean, was it a grind? I know I've talked to a lot of people who've recorded their own books or others and some people hate it. You got to go in for those sessions and you're with a board operator and then you got to get past whatever and then I mean did you did you enjoy the process of it I did because it was the most beautiful place I did it in Santa Fe and I was in a room that was also a music recording studio and it had this huge grand piano and it had portraits of all kinds of spiritual leaders and all these sort of sacred objects it was a big room and there was a black dog who sat on the other side of the window and watched me record and then (laughs) he would come out and say hi to me he was like my sound engineer there was an actual sound engineer (laughs) but he was the assistant and so it was 
was just the the sweetest atmosphere. And then during the lunch break, I would go out and just walk for miles in the middle of nowhere. So it was a really lovely, lovely way of doing it. It was long, though. You know, you're talking and talking and talking and And you're doing different... um you know, different takes, I go, or you're just uh, yeah, speeding through it? Well, you make mistakes and you have to stop yourself. And then there's always the question, right, of do you do an accent or not? And then you sort of criticize yourself. Like with my stepmother, I imitate my stepmother all the time, but I I was actually doing things that she'd said. And I thought, oh, that doesn't really sound like her. And I thought, well, it doesn't matter. She's not alive. She's not going to criticize me. And then I thought, oh, yes, she is. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever she is, she's going, that wasn't good. And we, we should also say that we have with you, too, your, uh, your companion, I yes. would say, Allie. My travel companion, my squeaking travel companion, she is loving it because uh, she gets to spend her Saturday night sleepover with, uh, <laughs> with, a lot with, of toys. with a lot of toys, a lot of dog toys and a new dog friend. So she's squeaking on yeah. a little lamb. She here. was hanging out with my dog, Babe, and we've been hanging out on the couch and she's found all Babe's toys and she's, she loves them. And it's great. And she's such a wonderful dog. She it's, is an amazing dog. Yeah, she I, loves everybody. It's really nice when you, when you can, you know, you, to me, animals, especially dogs and cats are like the truest form of love and absolutely. affection and absolutely um you know as i've gotten older i've gotten more i don't know if i would say like uh, emotional about things like i find myself i can watch a movie that i've watched hundreds of times before and i'm fine but now you know i, I don't know what it is if i'm just because i'm a pisces or with my wife it's just I, I i cry at the drop of a hat and it's almost like you know me being a man it's like you know I, I, you shouldn't be doing that but, but I, you're italian yeah, right yeah, exactly. so you have an excuse <laughs> yeah. you have a little bit of so, it would be weirder if you were like me a wasp right <laughs> and then you know yeah and then so and then with animals now like i i've i've become a very big animal advocate and just you know that's a the downside of social media where you try to oh. do positive things but every time say on facebook you like something you see four other things that are horrific or yes. horrible to donate and stuff the and starving just, dogs yeah. you know pictures there so I, I know we have to be aware that that's what's happening but it's just so devastating yeah. or to, even the animal abuse it's yes, just it's just like horrible can't, horrible you know, and then you when you try to sh- be an advocate and share it or whatever then you get i get flack from people why are you posting that i'm like well then don't look at it you know so it's right. and my wife being a vegan but i digress but <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, and um, it's like I wanted to talk to you about your father, uh, Vincent Price, but then after reading your book, it's like, no, I want to talk to you about, I mean, the, the book was so amazing, and oh. it's so um, it's so inspiring, it, and it was just, and it's it, your quest to, to, to I guess, um, so much as so as to... I guess come to terms with some of the, a lot of the the, the 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 things you've had going on in your life. And after reading, I read your your the biography you did on your father uh, in 2011, right around uh, the Vincentennial. Yeah. And uh, it was serendipitous because I was working in the city, and then like I would stop reading and I would walk up from where I work up Sixth Avenue to like 54th, where his apartment used to be, and like the the sad story about the cat there. Yes. I'm looking around and. That's completely the entire block's redone. Right. You know, like, so, like, I was trying to find these connections or where I am in Westchester, like, Scarsdale's near us. I was like, oh, where did he live near Scarsdale, you know? So, after reading the the book in 2011, it made me want to know more about your mother, you know? And so, then I tried to do as much research as I could, you know, is she still alive or what age would she be or what's going on? And, you know, and then you look at, we have YouTube now, so you can find YouTube clips, you know? And I I, I found the This Is Your Life uh clip that they did on your father Vincent and uh coming to this book the way of being lost it is kind of I wouldn't say it's a biography on her but it is great for you to expand on that and it's almost 
you versus your mom or, or yeah. in the sense of, you know, coming to terms with what's going on and all that and exploring a lot more of that, which I found so enthralling and so interesting. She was such an interesting woman, you know, and she lived in my head for so long. Thank you, Allie. <laughs> <laughs> she lived in my head for so long in terms of her voice always kind of telling me what to do. And in many ways, she was an absolute gift, my mom, because she really... It's all about the lamb. <laughs> Allie the just lamb. wants the squeaky lamb. <laughs> My mom, it. you know, really wanted the best for me, but she also felt that her way was the right way. Of course. And so that idea, you know, I had this little bit of a thing, even though I, I knew that I was different from my mom. I knew I wanted to be different, but I had this sort of hope that maybe she was right. There was one right way. And if I could figure out what that right way was, then everything would feel better and I'd feel safe in the world. You know, I think that's why we all fall into ideas that there is something out there that, you know, will make the world make sense. And we don't realize until we're much older that the only way we can make sense of things is to go deep inside. And so that was really what the book is about. You know, it's called The Way of Being Lost because I had to lose a lot of the voices in my head in order to be able to get quiet enough to hear my own voice. And that's fascinating because I think that will speak to anybody, even people who don't like self-help books or not wouldn't even have thought that they would be um, compelled to read a self-help book or any kind of a inspirational book. And like I identified immediately because I have a uh, full disclosure, kind of a similar relationship with my mother, you know, uh. and, and I wouldn't say tyrannical, but you know, she's very, this is the right way. I'm the parent, you're the child, even though I'm, you know, 38 years old, right. she's still telling me you're the child and you're going to know, <laughs> right. you know, and it's, and she gives me the advice that I don't need. And then she, <laughs> right. and then she, you know, and then she doesn't want to hear, and I don't give you any, you know, so it's, I identified a lot with that mm. in, in my relationships with my family and stuff. And that's why I think I found it so interesting and enthralling that, uh, you're so open about it all. And it's, and I just, it, I think it takes so much, even from you, I guess, in 1999, doing the, your father's biography coming right. out, uh, Vincent Price, uh, a daughter's biography, and then almost your, um, I, wouldn't, I, I guess, your journey to, this, to, to now 2018 and having this come out and, and even your, you know, how you've evolved or, or just you know, um, became wiser with things. It's just, it's a, it's really amazing. Oh, you know, it's interesting because I thought about this yesterday with the book coming out. I, I was so scared when I was writing that biography because my mom was still alive and I was so afraid of hurting the, the, her. The, uh, the biography fa- yeah, of my father, dad, yeah. right? And I was afraid of hurting her. I was afraid that she would get her feelings hurt. I was afraid she would be angry. Of course. All of those yeah, things, Yeah, because right? you're, you're, you're kind of opening your heart up right? in that situation. Then you don't want her to say, oh, you're airing dirty laundry. Right, or, exactly. Or, uh, you know, you're casting such and such in a bad light. Exactly. You know? Ex- and a lot of the, for me, I mean, I was getting emotional too to learn it's not. It's no nobody's business. But you kind of put it out there about the, you know, the, the your parents' divorce. Yeah. And then that, and that's just so tough. And then uh, how old you were? Eleven. Yeah. yeah. So it's just that episode in your life, and then everything going on with then your father marrying your stepmother. It's just so. It's so intimate and it's so, you know, I think that's what's also appealing about the book is that you're so open, you know, and no one can't help but feel you know, gravitated Mm. towards it. Mm. Well, you know, it was scary to be that open, but I thought if I don't tell the truth, then I'm just sort of following in their footsteps because they were a generation that was taught to hide, especially if you were in Hollywood, right? And the interesting thing is last night, as, as I was really beginning this journey of talking about the book, I thought, I know my mother would be happy for me. 
And I wouldn't have thought that two years ago. I would have been really scared yeah. to, to write some of the things I had written. But I realized that I had to recognize that my mother was sort of passing on to me what had been passed on to her. Yeah. My mother was English. She was brought up to be a certain way, to hold all her feelings in, to do things the right way. And what was so amazing about shifting... <laughs> that's Allie now playing with a cat toy. That's she's hilarious. To, yeah. She's playing with, with, the, the, sp- with, the, with the, the spin yes, with the ball. And she's the, uh, having the best time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, we have an amusement park of animals. Uh, it's, <laughs> this is like, forget, you know, me coming to do the podcast. You've given my dog the best morning ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. Um, yeah, so I feel like what really happened was that I was able to forgive her by understanding that she was just passing on to me what she had learned herself. And in a way, I knew that that released her. Yeah. Right? So she actually felt released from all of that. And by feeling released from all of that, even though she's gone energetically, I really feel like now she's on my side. We're on each other's side, yeah. which she always was. There was just this idea of right and wrong that was stuck in between us. Like a tension. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, and that's kind of, it's tough because, especially for your upbringing, uh, having you know um a, a very iconic and legendary father and then having to grow up in that world i i noticed parallels i read uh joan benny's book about her father mm. jack benny mary livingston oh. and she had kind of a um uh a, a tension of a relationship with her mother not to the extent you had but i did notice similarities where they butted heads a lot god it. and it's and it's it is interesting that to to have that world and, you know, in the early 60s and then when you get into the, the, the late 60s, you said like, well, you know, with the Manson murders, you right. had a security guard and it's just young for someone, you know, you since you're a child, you don't know any different of, no. of this in this situation than, you know, hanging out with, with, the, with people and, and other people's friends and, and then the world, you know, you're just hanging out with... You know, Roddy McDowell and all, right. you, know, you know, all these people. You don't know, you know. No, I look back on my life now and I think, wow, what a different life I lived. But that was the life I knew. And and the kids in my class lived similar lives. Yeah. You know, Jill Martin was in my class and her dad was Quinn Martin, who produced so many TV shows when I was growing up. The FBI and Streets of San Francisco and all of those shows. And, and everything was a Quinn Martin production. And every birthday she had this amazing, like, spectacular spectacle of a birthday like he would rent out a screening room and we would watch like national velvet and then we would go have birthday cake and lunch in uh the walton school room or whatever right yeah yeah and of course she thought that was cool oh my gosh we're in the walton school room but it wasn't out of the norm it wasn't like you came from peoria and you you know you were in the walton school room like you had a frame of reference right yeah. yeah you it was exciting. You didn't take it for granted, but it was still the norm. Yeah. And then you come out into the world and you go, oh, wow, I, I grew up very unusually, yeah. you know? What what age do you think you, I mean, I think you've answered this before, but was there an age that you kind of realized, well, I, I guess it is a little different from... How most people grew up? Yeah. I think it really took to my 20s. Yeah. Because, you know, even though I li- when I was 16, I was an exchange student in Germany and uh, I lived with a wonderful family, probably the best year of my life. They were and, and still are an amazing family, and I adore them. And so I got to be sort of normal, right? Like I rode my bike to school, and I, I got an allowance, and I tutored kids, and nobody knew who my dad was. And, it was, and I just lived in a small town outside of a big city and had a, had a normal life as a German teenager. And I spoke German... I, I learned German quickly and, and spoke it. And, 
And I thought, wow, this is so great. But I still knew I was going back to my real life. Yeah. So it was almost like a vacation yeah. for my real life. And it really wasn't until I, I, I think really that I was in my 20s and I began to go, wow, you know, most people didn't grow up like I did. Yeah. Because even in college, I went to an elite West uh, East Coast school and there were a lot of kids who whose parents were at the top of their fields, whatever they were. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't until I just sort of became like a, a normal person living a normal life that I thought, oh, yeah, right. Most people didn't grow up uh, with a f- parents who drove a Rolls Royce and lived in a 9,000 square foot house and whose father was a household name. Yeah. And then and then they ended up traveling a lot. Too. Yeah. And would you accompany them? Or? Uh, yes. Not all the time. Often I was left at home. But when I did go, you know, of course, we were treated differently. Yeah. You were given the best room in the hotel. My dad... In his contracts, it always stipulated that he got a first-class ticket, and my dad was hilarious, so he would trade in the first-class ticket, pocket the cash, buy the coach ticket, and nine times out of ten, he'd show up at the airport with his coach ticket, and they would say, Mr. Price, you're flying coach. Oh, we'll upgrade you. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And, and so he would get that free oh, upgrade. Brilliant. Yes, it was brilliant. And, um, and of course, he just thought it was outrageous that you paid $6,000, whatever you were paying for a first-class ticket. So he, he took the money, and sometimes he flew in coach. He didn't yeah. care. It was His legs were a little bit long for coach, but yeah. in those days, it wasn't quite that cramped. Uh, but, you know, he was always upgraded. The best room the, in, the rest, in the hotel, the best table at the restaurant, the first-class seat. Of course. Because people loved And he loved him. He never took it for granted. They just loved him. And, uh, and it was good for the airline or the hotel or whatever. But then you go out into the real world and you go to the same restaurant and nobody knows who you are and they don't care and you're seated wherever you're seated yeah. and there you go. And you think, oh, this is... Oh, Allie. <laughs> she's hearing something. Allie, what do you think? She doesn't live a normal life either. <laughs> For two years, she's lived on the road. She's two years old. She's been to 36 states. So I wonder when she's going to grow up and realize that other dogs don't live like her. <laughs> Just like, sure. um, what do you think, babe? And my, my dog's here, too, to, to see us. Hey, babe. What do you, are you think? What are you doing? He's just having a mosey, looking <laughs> around. So I, I saw you do a presentation maybe 2004. 14 in New York City, um, and then we went and ate at Sardi's afterward. That was so fun. And you spoke then about talking about, you know, um, talking about your father and giving like almost like a, a colloquium about him. And then uh, listening to that, it almost sounds like you were talking about, and then the essence of joy. And, you know, and you're bringing in the joy of um, you have a blog that you do every day. It's called the Daily Practice of Joy, or yeah. it's a weekly. B- b- you know, sometimes it's every day, sometimes it's once a week, yeah. at least once a week. But it's your diligence, which is amazing. You said you get up on a Sunday morning yep. and you write, and yep. you're up, you know, even before the sun's up. Yep. And that's, 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 no, you know. I try to keep up with it. Yeah. yeah. And it seemed like to me, uh, the catalyst, well, you know, you were on your journey almost then for this book where you're talking about the joy and you trying to figure out the issues you thought you had with your own life and then you taking your dad as an inspiration and then using the joy. And I find that amazing that you said that he was such a bright person. and He was. He was so full of life and light and he just... You know, when you're the kid of a famous person and everybody pays so much attention to fame, you start thinking that fame is the most important thing. And we live in a society that just is driven by fame. Yeah, especially nowadays. Yes, it's crazy. Media. And so you think, wow, I'm I'm the kid of a famous person and people are interested in this and this is what I should be interested in. And it really wasn't until the Vincentennial and then the years following that where I thought, 
But that wasn't what was interesting about him. What was interesting about him was that he was so generous and full of life and full of joy. And I realized that his legacy to me was not fame. Yeah. It, it was joy, yeah. that he was just somebody who, the definition of joy I like the best is the pure and simple delight in being alive. And he just found that delight in being alive. And these days it's hard, you yeah. know, it's hard. You read the paper and it's grim and every day there's some horrific thing happening around the world. And you think, why should we even care about joy? But to me, why joy is important is if we lose our joy in being alive, then we become apathetic and we start stop caring about the fate of the planet. Yeah. We think, you know, what can I do? You read, uh, I read about this uh, one Olympic athlete who adopted a dog in South Korea to save it from the dog food industry. Yeah, the meat industry there. And, right. Because they eat dog in yeah, South Korea. Yeah, and, and somebody might say, well, you know, one dog, I'm sure there's thousands, whatever, hundreds of thousands of dogs being killed. And there's this wonderful story. I, I went to a seminary, and the head of our seminary, Diane Burke, told this wonderful story about, I think it was a, a somebody, a little boy, I think it was, who was found all these starfish washed up on the beach. And so one by one, he was throwing them back in the ocean, and a man came up to him, and he said, you know, there's thousands of starfish here. You know, you can't save them all. You know, uh, what are you trying to do? You know, how do you think you're going to make a difference? And the boy kept while he was listening to the man picking up a starfish and throwing it into the ocean. And he turned to the man as he threw one in and he said, it made a difference to that one. Oh, you know, and that's that's such a great story, right? It reminds us that so to show up in joy every single day is to show up in connection and, and love to the planet and to the other creatures on this planet and to be able to to do that is really critical. Yeah, I think that's what I had the connection with with your book. Um, being in a, you know, a, a workaholic grind. You talk about how you 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 were a workaholic or still yeah. are a workaholic, and you know, uh, a lot of people are in that nine to five or whatever yes. their 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 um, work schedule is. And then the situation with the world nowadays, where it's it's very partisan, it's very uh, um, it's cynical. Yeah. The, all the negativity you could say is in the world. Uh, it is really heartfelt and and nice and comforting to to, to 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 be reminded that yeah you know every day you know get up and, and see the joy or see the you know the um, the, the goodness or, or just take something and I like the idea of um, I know you say you're not a horror fan or or, or, or uh, per se and then your father's right. known for that legacy but almost when you were talking in the book about the shoulds or the the fears and all and, and it almost to me came became like a ominous horror movie of you know not a monster like a frankenstein but more like an omnipresence of like you know the tornado and twister yes. or, you know what i mean where it's nature or you know it's some pervasive the fog you know what right I mean? and yeah, it becomes absolutely. your own you know monster or demon that you have to or, or you or people have to try to get over within themselves i'm loving these ads right now i don't know what tax company they're for but they're about the fear of doing taxes yes and they're all oh, the each, monster yes the, and there's the monster under under, the bed. yeah under the bed under the stairs in the attic and, and that a very is proper english accent yes <laughs> and that's how we all feel about our taxes right of i mean everybody does we do our taxes like oh what a, what a horrible thing am i gonna find right and so we have this fear around all sorts of things like that. And it's such a clever ad because it's, we create this thing in our minds. And my uncle was this amazing, uh, 
teacher, spiritual teacher and healer and an incredible person. He used to lecture all over the world. He had the most beautiful English accent. He looked like... Your mother's brother. My mother's brother, yeah. And he looked like um, John Gilgood, but he had... um, uh, uh, Ronald Coleman's beautiful, oh, beautiful accent, just gorgeous voice. And so he would even do recordings and things. So he gave these lectures. And my favorite story was he told the story of a man who's being chased by a horrible monster. And so he's uh, having a nightmare, right? And he's and he's running and running and trying to outrun this monster. And of course, in a nightmare, the monster is always bigger and faster and is going to catch up. And so the man runs down this alley and is realize it's at one of those horrible dead end you know new york city alleys where there's only you know bricks bricks everywhere and nowhere to go right and he's trapped and so he turned around turns around and he faces the monster and the monster comes up and looms over him and the man's like what are you gonna do to me and the monster looks at him and says i don't know it's your nightmare yeah you never got that right yeah right and and that's the thing right we carry we create these nightmares we build these ideas in our head about how bad it is like doubt or fear, fear yeah. exactly the things that we're we're terrified of and then we we let that paralyze us and so one of the things about this book is that I think what I try to help people see or I hope that I can help people see is that facing your fears is actually the most empowering thing you can do. And I'm a big hider and I come from a family of hiders and I'm all about sweeping those monsters under the rug or shutting the door of the closet and it has not served me. Yeah. So for me, being able to, to you know do what my mother would have called airing my dirty laundry to talk about how I face down those fears is I hope a way of showing people that you know, and I kind of go step by step through it because I think it's really easy for us to be convinced that we can't do this. Yeah. And, you know, it's taken me a long time and it hasn't been easy, but I feel like, you know, if I can do it, anyone can do it. It so. seems like it's an evolving, even today, it's oh, evolving yeah. for you and, and it's still going. Yeah, that absolutely. That was a year or two, two ago. Absolutely. It's no, there's no end, you know, there's no finish line. It's not over. Yeah. You know, it's a road trip to my truest self because it's keeping going. <laughs> what is it, Allie? Thank you. Well, you better get that. She loves the toys here. You have the most awesome <laughs> no, toys. Just, uh, just like just a, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What What are your fears, Allie? What's Allie looking for? What? What? Do you have fears? What are you looking for? Allie has some some deep seated fears that 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 toy is never going to get picked up. <laughs> it's never going to go again. <laughs> I love how vocal they are. Hey, are. get the toy. And then now I'm over it now. <laughs> that is you, and that surprises the heck out of me to think that like your father didn't have. I mean, I'm sure you you I I didn't know you talk about your your great grandfather being. Uh, now they moved to St. Louis yep. before the 1893 crash, maybe. No, after he moved in 19 I think 02 and 1904 was the Olympics, so the early 1900s in time to get there for the Olympics and the World's Fair, which yeah. was a smart business move. Yeah, and he invented baking soda. The, that was my great-grandfather, and then my yeah. grandfather moved to St. Louis, um, and he w- ran one of the largest candy companies in the United States. Yeah. And he was the head of the National Candy Makers Association, which it, is cool. It's so amazing. And then um, your your father's brother had... Um, the, the, your grandfather had some business issues. Right. And he had to have almost like the George Bailey, It's a Wonderful Life, right. pull your father's brother out. Right. And then... Your your father's brother, your uncle, had to take care of the business, and then yeah. you said your father kind of had that was a 
like a guilt-ridden yeah because he felt like his older brother was this amazingly talented jazz pianist and he had to go into the family business and then my my own dad who was so much younger um got to become this creative person and he didn't feel he was any more creative than his older brother but he was given permission to be creative yeah and his older brother wasn't and and so his older brother really struggled he uh he ended up you know becoming an alcoholic and dying of cirrhosis of the liver because he was so unhappy and my dad you know wasn't wasn't you know able to really ever feel like he was able to help his brother leave that behind did he did um his brother pass away uh in the 60s okay so it was after uh, yeah the parents had passed yeah 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 so and he would come spend time with my dad and his daughter lived just up the road from from us growing up so they were very close and then my my aunt lived in scarsdale and my one aunt and the other aunt lived in um out in the ozarks outside of st louis in missouri Yeah. yeah I got to visit yeah. St. Louis two years ago when I was there for work uh, following the political campaign, and and we were on Washington University. Oh, yeah. So I was looking up to see where your father's house was, yeah. and I was like, it's right across the street. So on my lunch break, I walked across. Oh, cool. And I like I looked, and there's a little plaque hidden. Is there? You know, yeah, there's a oh, plaque on the, on the house itself saying this is a part of the historical society or whatever. And then I talked to somebody on campus. And they, everyone knows about it. Everyone's, and really? they were like, yeah, you know, uh, Vincent's mother had a problem when this building across the street went up the architecture. Oh, they college do? Build. They yeah. do the whole story? Yeah, yeah. That's and she, so cool. And she, she protested when the, the, you know, because she didn't think it looked good, you know. Yeah. So I was like, oh, really? And I knew none of this. So yes. I was, like, you know, I was like a little kid like that. You know, I found it so fascinating, again, to retrace. See, that's with me. I'm one of these people who love to think about like, oh, who's who's been here, who's passed, who's done this, you know. Uh, I like to touch things when I go places like, you mm. know, older building to try to you know maybe feel the power or i love that. the energy so i'm always thinking about like you know every my day you know who's passed by here who's you know who's done this who's done that and uh yeah i just found your book so inspirational to to, to and again just how open and sincere and honest you are about all this well i think you know at the end of the day when you grow up in the era of hollywood that my parents lived in every word that they said was monitored, right? And so I grew up being taught the same way, that there were things you can say and things that you can't. And in a big way, I had to learn to let go of that because I felt like I had stopped knowing who I was because I was so good at at figuring out what my script for the world should be. Yeah. And always my mother's voice in my head saying, you're not going to say that, are you? You know, you're not going to tell people that, are you? And I thought, well... What's so scary? You know, what's so scary? And and at the end of the day, I think the thing that makes people feel the most unsafe is when we feel like people are saying one thing and doing another. Yeah. When we feel like we can't trust what people are saying because we're not really sure who they really are. And so I thought the, the... one of the things that I think made me someone I couldn't trust in myself and therefore feel untrustworthy in relationship to other people was that if I didn't know who I was, how could I show up as me, Yeah. right? How could I possibly show up and say, 100% you can trust me because I know who I am? Well, you know, we lose who we are at such an early age because we begin constructing our identities for the world, yeah, right? Yeah, the mask we put on. Yes, so, yeah, yeah. exactly. The mask we put on. Oh, look, we have a whole different color <laughs> toy. How did we get this color? And so, uh, you know, learning to, to know who I am, you know, now I can say to people, um, 
gosh, you know, I, I prefer animals to people, or I'm not very social, or I'd rather, you know, have dinner one-on-one, -on -one. I don't really like parties. Before, I, I tried to pretend I was somebody who was okay with all of that, and I'm just not that person. I'm yeah. not social like that. Well, I'd rather be that person than show up at a party and be a pain in the neck, or be something like, who's that loser in the corner yeah. who's just like this big negative energy? Yeah. So years ago, when I realized that that was who I was, and I stopped trying to pretend that I was someone else, then, you know, now people don't, you know, they'll say, we know you won't come, we just want you to know you're invited. <laughs> and then every so often I think, you know what, whatever this is, it's a celebration for something, I really want to support that person, I want to celebrate that person. And you'll person. go out of your comfort zone. Yeah, or and, just go, and right, and I'm choosing to do that, but then if I say to someone halfway through the party, I just really want to be here for you but I've kind of like I'm I'm here I'm up to here with social they're like thank you so much for coming yeah because they know who I am yeah. so it's little things those are little things but it's a way of being honest with ourselves <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound effects during this podcast it's, it's little do people know it's just me with it with a, with a tweaker <laughs> right, just, exactly. just doing it the entire right. time we don't really have dog yeah, toys yeah at all um but you know as as I don't know as different as you'd say you were growing up in, in your childhood I do find a lot of similarities with anybody when you talk about, um, you know, at a very young age, your mother, you know, I think we all have those uh, memories of when we're very young, someone being very candid or frank with us, and we interpret it a certain way. Yes. And then it stays with us for years. Forever. Or, yeah. And, and so even though you had a upbringing that was with you know, celebrity or whatever, it, it, I think it's, it is very, uh, it can be a very big parallel to anybody, you know, uh, a, a mother or a father or a, um, uh, a adult figure says something to you that you keep with. And then because of that, you build this cocoon of fear or doubt or, you know, and then it, you, your phobias or your anxieties as you get older are a product of that. Absolutely. Which, and you're not aware of it. Or even, even for example, my mother always used to say that I was her best friend. And she said it because she didn't get along with her own mother. Yeah. So in a way, this sort of script she had of me being her best friend, but the best friend she really didn't want to know that much about and certainly didn't want her best friend to go into detail or, or be somebody she didn't want her to be. Um, my mother, the whole script was based on I, I want to be my daughter's best friend so I don't have the relationship with her that I had with my own mother and in and then that's fake too yeah. right or you know my mother saying something to me like I'm saying this for your own good and they genuinely believe it except it really isn't for our own good <laughs> yeah you and know? they don't know at the time no, but then exactly you know. So we have to start unpacking that and get underneath it and think, well, what were they really trying to do? Yeah. What were they really trying to teach us or say to us? And I think that, and here we go with another toy. <laughs> this is like the best house ever. Who knew? What? It, look at what this is a... This might be have... Llama with a party hat. It might have some sort of... Oh, the squeaker's dead. My dog will... Or do it until the squeaker's <laughs> dead, and then he's done with it. So that might could be a situation where that the dead ain't gonna squeak. Good, Sorry, that's good. Allie. No, it's good. She can keep it a little it's bit. It's good quiet. therapy. It's like it's like this <laughs> is like this is nice like an excursion for exactly. Um, I think it's a sheep with a party hat, a sheep with a Santa hat. Yeah, and then with a like a red kind of a tail. Yes, it's very nice. <laughs> Yeah, so I think one of the things we have to really learn how to unpack in our own lives are these things that we've told ourselves are true because somebody else told yeah. us they were true. And we have to get underneath. The reason I called the book A Road Trip to My Truest Self is that we grow up and at a very young age we're told to stop listening to ourselves because we should be listening to grown-ups or people who know better, or even people on the television or 
you know, news anchors, whoever, these people who are supposed to, I mean, in my day, it was Walter Cronkite. Of course, you yeah, know? yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, that famous, I think it was quote about Nixon, you know, well, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost America. Yeah. Well, we we put our faith in, and we would watch, you know, Mr., I called him Mr. Cronkite, um, <laughs> you know, and every night I would say, good night, Mr. Cronkite, uh, you know, because, and he was... Even now, I wish I had met him because he seemed like God to me, you know, and now there's so many people. I know, who, it's so polarizing, it's, yeah. Yeah, but but we come to believe that certain people know the truth and we can find that truth out there. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is then we stop being able to listen to what we know inside. Yeah. Because sometimes what we know inside has no explanation out there. You know, for me, I... I I, I was talking last night and somebody said, the moment you started talking about being intentionally homeless, I could feel my whole body start to seize up. It is a frightening uh, idea that, that, I mean, you intentionally made yourself homeless just for the idea of challenging yourself and uprooting yourself. And, uh, you know, you're over my house and you see that we live like hoarders here with, with, with uh, you know, with media, books and DVDs and, and, and music. And it's, uh, for you to just, get rid of everything it's almost like there's the um the japanese book the life-changing magic of tidying yes. up by uh marie kondo uh, kondo yeah. and when you were talking about that in, in in your book that immediately brought that to mind because my wife bought that a couple years ago and she's like this is what we're gonna do and that was like the scariest thing for me. <laughs> right. like, what are you talking about you know, <laughs> right. who are you you know <laughs> and so it, it is it is it is not only to have us think that us as a person to take this step on but to ha hear someone say they've started embarked on this journey and you're purposely becoming like a um like bill bixby in the incredible hulk like you know you're waltzing matilda you're just walking around you know traveling the world and um that could be very scary for people out of their comfort zones. It's certainly. scary for me sometimes yeah. out of my comfort zone. I mean, my happiest times growing up were traveling. We had this early RV and and we would go all over in it. And my parents and I loved a road trip. We loved traveling together. But they were also accumulators. I mean, I grew up in a 9,000 square foot house with not one inch of bare anything. You yeah. know, it was packed to the gills. And we had a lot of stuff and I was in the business. I mean, I made my living both as a owning a design studio, being an interior designer and, um, and being an art dealer. And so I was in the business of selling people a lot of stuff, right? And art and furniture and cr creating these very permanent spaces for people. And yet, you know, when this came up and it, I didn't see it as an opportunity. I didn't really want it to happen, but it happened and I felt like the universe was sort of pushing me out the door. And I did that. I had been listening to her book um, as an, hello, as an audio book. And so I, um, I'm Marie Kondo's. And so I came home and I literally held everything I owned. And if it did not spark joy, I let it go. So I don't have a bed. I don't have a sofa. I have a chair that I loved. And it's a beautiful chair. It's a classic chair. It's a, a womb chair. But the reason I kept it wasn't because it's this beautiful classic chair. I had a Dalmatian for 16 years. And my Dalmatian, it, it, the chair is black and white. And that Dalmatian appropriated that chair from the time he was two years old. And he Dalmatian shed a lot. Yeah. And so, 
by the time he was about eight years old, I gave up and I just covered it with a fleece and it became his, you know, $4,000 dog bed. <laughs> I never sat on that chair because otherwise we would sort of fight on it. You know, I would, I would leave the house. I'd clean the whole chair off. I told him, do not get on the chair. And, and I'd come back and it'd be covered in dog hair. So one day I drove out, I drove to the end of the driveway. I turned left and then I tiptoed back and he literally, this was my Dalmatian. He was watching me out the window. He couldn't see me. So he's watching out the window. And I saw him make sure that the car was out of sight and tiptoe back and get on that chair. Oh, that's lovely. And so to me, I could not sell that chair ever, not because it was this beautiful chair, but because it was his chair. Yeah. That's always going to be Jack's chair. It's Jack's chair. And so there was very little in the way of furniture that I kept the art, I kept 90% of it because it still sparked joy. Yeah. Uh, but but very little did I keep. I don't have a bed. I kept I kept a desk chair because if you're a writer, yeah. having a comfortable chair to sit in when you write, as I now know, living all over, you know, in hotels and in people's houses, and I mostly sit in their dining chairs, uh, and it's uncomfortable to write in, in something that is not a comfortable chair. And so I kept a desk chair, but... There was very little that, even books, I let all the books go. Um, I digitized everything. I am the big fan of the Kindle because I can have a library yeah. with me in a tiny little thing. But it was really hard. The thing that I've noticed is when I first started, I would go to someone's house and I would compare it to mine. I'd be on the road. I'd be in, staying with somebody. I'd be at an Airbnb. I'd go in and I'd think, oh, God, this kitchen it's not as nice as mine yeah. you know and people pay me a lot of money people pay me millions of dollars to build very expensive you know multi-million dollar homes for them so i was also used to that now two years down the line i'm grateful that it is a kitchen i'm grateful that there's a refrigerator i'm grateful that i'm not in a hotel and i can cook like if i'm staying i'm staying with a friend right now and i you know i remember the first time i stayed with her and i was like where's my multi-million dollar not that i lived in a multi-million dollar kitchen but i was spending a lot of time in people's multi-million dollar homes and i thought you know, where's my gorgeous kitchen with the sub-zero? You know, she lives in a very modest place. Yeah. Now I go there and I'm like, oh, I'm so happy to be here. I love being here. And fantastic. There's the, you know, I know where the pots and pans are and I know how her stove works and I can cook and right across the street it's like my favorite little organic store and I can buy whatever I want right across there. And it's changed my level of expectation to just one of gratitude. And I love going to Airbnbs. Everything feels so much simpler because I've lowered my expectations. And and we're not taught that that's a good thing. But actually lowering our expectations just simply to the level of gratitude and love is a wonderful way to live. Get yeah, your that, toy. That, that, that we won't. Get your toy. What's that? Where's your toy? What's it? Best, best place she's ever been. <laughs> well, if we can make her happy, that's <laughs> exactly. we've done our job. You know, we have done our job. She brought, <laughs> exactly. her, she brought her sleeping bag. My my dog babe just came out, looked, and just walked back, walked <laughs> away. He just went back in. It's like whatever. Um, so you talk about your father being a, a, an amazing actor, but then also your mom. I don't think it's uh, n not too much in the weeds, but I think your mom as well is underrated as a almost a chameleon herself because you talk about how mm -hmm. when your father first met your mother she had a Bronx accent and she's English yes. but she and then uh, she would adopt um, uh, dialects or uh, different uh, 
things when she go different places in the world. And you said you're you're you've seen yourself doing that. Yeah, with, you know, you're able to pick up a language quickly and all that. And yeah, it, you know, my mom was this very unconscious mimic. We would get in a cab with her, and she would become whatever nationality the cab driver was. And it took me a long time to realize that because she'd grown up all over the world, so she was born in Wales, grew up between Wales and England, and then lived in Shanghai, and then lived in British Columbia, yeah. and came to the United States when she was 18, and, and traveled all over the world. Because she was in so many different environments, uh, she just adapted. It was her way of fitting in, of not feeling like she was an outsider or a weirdo, right? And when I travel, I find that I do the same thing. I, I try to find a way to fit in. In China, of course, you know, when I went to China, back to see where my mother grew up. So here's here I am, 5'11 and blonde, and I actually dyed my hair super blonde, and then I put in like these big streaks of purple and, and, and different colors in my hair because I thought, well, I'm going to stand out in China. Let's stand out. And the kids loved me. They were all <laughs> wanting to have their picture taken with me, and I had a bright pink down jacket, and, and everybody, you know, it was fun because color is, uh, the Chinese love color. And and uh, so it was, and I was alone, you know, I wasn't traveling with a group. So I had so much fun meeting people, but I would be with these guides. I had a different guide in different areas and I would start to mimic them. And I thought, what, what are you doing? That's so offensive. And I realized that I was actually just trying to fit in, trying yeah. to find a way to sort of speak their language, yeah. you know? I, and I find myself doing that and people, will, you know, if I'm hanging out with someone who's Irish, by the end of the night, I'm speaking, right. you know, and then people say, isn't that offensive or... For me, and I remember people used to give, say, Madonna Guff in the early odds when she moved to England, and suddenly you developed some sort of, and she's like, oh, right. now she has an English accent, right. but now my wife is English, I start saying the colloquialisms, and, oh, sure. you know, so you pick up, so I find that, you know, that's actually quite truthful to be able to, you know, you, you, you develop whatever, you know, yes. that you're seeing around you, and it's, you know. Absolutely, even just little things, like, you know, when I'm in England... Or, uh, you know, I find that I change my, because my mother was English, my stepmother was English. And so, you know, um, all of a sudden you start leaving out, like you say, in hospital yeah, instead yeah, of in yeah, the hospital, yeah. because there you are and you know that, that that's what it is. Yeah, I say that to, I'll say that to my wife, which just sounds perfectly fine. But then I say that to a coworker and they're like, that sounded so English, you know. Right. You know, and then like, I'm sorry, I have to kind of like, yeah. you know, change my speak to make sure I'm not right. doing that so much. I, when I was little, I thought your father was English. I mean, so being, many people when did. I was so young, you know, I probably was first exposed to him because I grew up in New Haven. Uh, he had gone to Yale. Uh, Thriller was big when I was little. Yeah. You know, and then I think the first film I saw of his was The Last Man on Earth. Ah. And that utterly terrified me. Uh, the um, Richard Matheson story, I Am Legend. And it was so, f at such a young age, he was with me. And it, it was just, it's so amazing to think that, um, you know, that the influence he had and then get past just being a, an actor, the, the culinary aspects. And, and that became something my wife and I loved to, to just the, you know, hit the, the, the life of him doing this stuff for Sears. Right. Or, you know, just the, the, the his <coughs> uh, love and passion for art. You know, it's just so, and that's something you've developed too. Your passions, you know, kind of uh, mimic his in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was easy to have your passions mimic somebody who was so passionate. Yeah, right? yeah, of course. He was so passionate about so many things, but art in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, I, there's that book out that's the five love languages. Yes. And I think the concept of the book is a really wonderful idea that, 
you know, if you love somebody, but you're loving them the way you love, maybe that love doesn't land on them because they need to feel love a different way. And I think instinctively, we all know that. That's why the book resonated for so many people. So my dad's love language, my dad's religion, my dad's everything was art. And he went to school for art. Yeah, yeah. he went to school for art. And so, of course, for me as a little girl... If you know that the person you love the most loves this thing the most, you want to learn about it. Of course, it. yeah. But he was so brilliant because he did the same thing. He wanted me to learn about art and love art. But he knew that what I loved the most were animals. Yeah. And so he taught me about art by showing me art that had animals in oh, it. Oh, that's, that's which such is, a great right? so learning he under, tool. Right. Almost. He understood my love language. Yeah. And it's so funny. I, I found this really sweet essay he wrote about me. I just found it recently, but he wrote it about me when I was four years old called Genius in the Making, which was he was saying it sarcastically, all these funny things. And he wrote about who my favorite actors on television were. And my favorite actors were the whole cast of the Flintstones. Of course. Right. Yeah. And every animal. So yeah. Flipper or the Chimp and Ductari or whatever. <laughs> they were all, you know, it was all about the animals. And my dad said, well, and they fought. Allie, come here. And they, and there we go. And Hi, see, Allie. I'm still the same. Yes, come here. She wants to play. She's all, she's all wired. Oh, Yes. It's all about the big game here. She's like, well, we came to play. Why are you guys <laughs> yeah, talking? Yeah, exactly. Why this are you is guys so talking? Boring. What's a podcast anyway? What is a podcast? And you're talking about animals and how much you love animals. And I'm trying to interject. So you're <laughs> exactly. not listening to me. You're not listening. Go get it. Babe can't possibly pick that up. Can He's he? tried. He does <laughs> sometimes. So. That's hilarious. She picks up every stick on the walk. That's genius. And we've made her day. She really thinks we came here for her. We have. And we have. Yeah, we right. have, of course. Totally. That's the number one priority. <laughs> That's right. So that was how you're, you're, you're kind of um, becoming acclimated with, with, with the art. Yeah. Is going th through that. And that, I guess that is uh, kind of elementary. And you look at these learning courses like a Rosetta Stone or something, they, they, or teaching a child. You know, this is, you just get it through in a way that they find it fun and accessible, right. like a Sesame Street. Right, yeah. exactly. There was a wonderful educator um, from Brazil named Paulo Freire. And many, uh, you know, developing nations had a very low literacy rate. And he figured out why. Because they would send people out with textbooks that they used in cities, right? And, um, and all of what they were trying to teach were, th were vocabulary words and ideas that were relevant to people who lived in cities, but they were sending them out to, you know, banana growers yeah, like out in the areas, Amazon, yeah. right? And what did they care about the, the bus or the, there was no bus, you yeah. know, there was a dugout canoe. <laughs> and so he came out, up with this brilliant idea and he taught this technique and he would send university students out and he said, you go out and you live in these communities, you live with families and you figure out how to teach them. And he gave them the techniques, teach them how to read by using things that are relevant to them. So of course, if you're growing bananas and you want to get the best price for your bananas and you want to learn what the best, you know, whatever you need to do, if there's a banana blight or whatever, then you're motivated to learn how to communicate with people who are communicating through the written word yeah. um, or some, you need to read something. You learn how to do it because you're motivated because it's about bananas or dugout canoes or the cost of wood or whatever it is you're using. And so it's that's like accessible to them. Exactly. Yeah. And so the literacy rates went from like 10% to 90% yeah. in these countries. And he was brought all over the world to, to Africa, to Central America. And it, his book's called 
called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's a wonderful book. It transformed my life. And it's exactly that. We learn anything by having it make sense to us. Yeah. You know, I never knew what math was about. I had no idea. And now I do all my own bookkeeping. Wow. You know, That's and an if somebody had, yeah. had explained to me you know, they tried to say, you'll need math later on. And I thought, yeah, no, I won't. Yeah. Right? I won't need math later on. But of course I did. Yeah. And once I understood that numbers were logical and I like logic, like I like logic puzzles, then it, I could make sense of it. But the areas of math that make no sense to me, like why do I need to know why X equals whatever in yeah. some equation? Like I look at that and it's like Swahili. Yeah. Somebody who understands math, you know, looks at it and it makes perfect sense yeah, to them. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, we yeah. understand the world by by being able to filter it through through who we are and that is you know again this idea of the truest self right we teach people uh, you know to become someone they're not and then to learn as that person they're not yeah but if we could one of the fa my favorite things I taught for years was learning how to listen to who my students were ah. and by listening to who they were make something interesting to them I had four boys who wouldn't read they were perfectly bright they just were bored out of their minds reading what I was having them read and we had this slot in the schedule so I was able to T take these four boys and have a literature class and I only taught books that I thought 13 year old 14 year old boys would like well, that's brilliant though so that, that and yeah and they they you know we read into the wild it was right after went into the wild and of course they were f really into having that conversation like yeah. why would it why would an 18 year old boy decide to you know drop out of the society and do all this and what did they think and we had amazing conversations they showed up every day ready mm. to have a conversation having read and i said you know sometimes they would say um I'd say to them, because they, they were conditioned to say this, well, what did you think of the book? I don't know, they would say. <laughs> and I would say, I'm sure that's not true. So let's have a rule in this class. You can say anything. You can say, I hated it. You can say, I thought it was stupid. You can say all of that. But you cannot say, I don't know why. You have to say why. <laughs> And so that's what they learned. You know, they learned that if they were free to have any opinion they wanted, they just had to know why they had the opinion. Then all of a sudden, and that's something we're not taught either. You know, that it's not, it's okay. It's not okay to have an opinion unlike, you know, the majority. Yeah. So, and that's why we're so divided as a country. Yeah. Because somebody's always going to be wrong and someone's always going to be right. And the bottom line is that's, you know, that's not going to get us anywhere. And people play into that. Exactly. Yeah. We get to that divisive place as opposed to being able to say, look, we need both sides here. Yeah. We need both sides because somewhere in the middle, there's something fruitful that's going to yeah. happen. You know, somebody saying you're right, I'm wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. We're just going to stay stuck. Yeah. That's what I find the pitfalls of social media where yeah. you just get on that and everybody has a voice and everybody thinks, you know, they can just interject whatever they want and exactly. be horrible and mean and, oh, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's another thing I liked about your book is that you, you have it like uh, sprinkled in all these beautiful quotes from poets and, mm. and authors and stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's great grounding, you know, through everything. And you then relay it to what you're talking about specifically. Uh, well, you know, poets and authors, I, the reason I wanted to write the book in the first place is because when I was a little kid, you know, I didn't watch a lot of television. My parents were book people yeah. and they didn't want me to be one of those kids who was babysat by the television. 
but they would let me read whatever I wanted. So I read and read and read voraciously. And even now I will always read versus turn on something. And so uh, those books and those people in those books saved my life. You know, they helped me make sense of the world and they still do. And I just wanted to be a part of that conversation with this book. For people who do need a lifeline, I wanted to be a lifeline. I wanted to be part of, you know, contributing if somebody's really concerned or worried or confused or lost I wanted to be part of finding finding you know a lifeline a way out yeah or a way in sometimes yeah and I I love the image you have about the wildflowers and how wildflowers grow Uh, they always uh, grow best where the soil is disturbed and that's great and I uh, an idea of being able to 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 make the best out of a situation or you know with the horribleness around you or whatever you're well, you know, the thing to me that started because I was on this road trip and I was having a miserable time and I looked out the road and I saw all these wildflowers blooming. I thought, oh, they're so beautiful. And then I realized that they weren't blooming someplace pretty. They were blooming by the side of the road. And in the eight, mid 80s, when this was happening, the side of the road was covered with yeah. garbage. And I thought, oh, it's such a shame that they're blooming and there's all this litter around them. And I was talking to this forest ranger and he said, wildflowers grow best where the soil is disturbed. And I thought that is so interesting. And the more I began to think about it and I thought and I thought and I thought about it, I realized that that's actually where everything interesting happens. And so right now, you know, we're so divided as a world politically and ethnically and religiously and all of these things. And we, everybody's so entrenched, my way is right and their way is wrong or their way is, you know, it's always dualities, right? But I believe that there is a third way, that these two ideas that seemingly have nothing in common, when they push up against each other, they disturb the soil, and out of that disturbed soil, we can create something new. So instead of seeing that having two ways is wrong, having two ways actually creates a third space, and in that third space, new ideas can wildflower. Because the bottom line is, as we're witnessing with you know the whole world, if we keep talking about the same things in the same ways, no change is going to happen we have to find a new way and and that new way has to come out of what's disturbed yeah you know i mean you know to to talk about current events you know the fact that we have had what is it you know 28 or something school shootings Yeah. yeah in the first 45 days of a year that's crazy right so on the one hand people say you know we have a right to bear arms on the other hand people say every country that has banned weapons you know there have been no more mass school shootings and everyone agrees i don't think there is anyone whether they're in the gun lobby or they're vehemently anti you know anti-guns anti-violence i don't think anyone thinks that guns should be in schools of course period the end i think we can all agree that nobody believes that children should be shot in a place where they should feel safe and so so then you have these two different camps how do you get to that place of agreeing so what you have to do is be willing to say okay these two things are going to collide and collide and collide and collide but somewhere there is this disturbance that is happening and the disturbance unfortunately is happening in the schools where where children are being shot it's happening on the streets where innocent people are being shot but the answer is not to say okay we have to find some compromise here and some compromise here 
the answer is to to realize you know that our children are the ones that need to wildflower that young people are the ones that need to wildflower that communities need to be able to feel safe so there has to be a whole new way of doing this i don't know what that answer is i have no idea what that answer is i am not not an expert in either of those things but everybody who is and who has a vested opinion in what it should be needs to really let themselves crumble. There's this wonderful Rumi poem that became kind of a mantra for me. Be crumbled so that wildflowers can come up right where you are. You've been stony for too many years. Try something different. Surrender. And to me, here's, you know, one side saying this is an amendment issue and another, you know, and another side saying this is a nonviolence issue. Whatever, you know, whatever the, the two different you know, camps are on anything. We all have to be willing to be crumbled. And if watching children getting shot isn't going to crumble us, nothing's going yeah. to, you know. So how can we be crumbled enough to be willing to try something different? All of us be willing to say, okay, you know, I don't know what the idea is, but it has to be different. Yeah. We've been so stony in our two different ideas and nothing grows on stone. Uh, you know, so how do we get to a place where we're willing to do something different, where we're willing to surrender and say, look, the way it is now isn't working. Yeah, it reminds me of a um, Jim Morrison quote from one of his songs. He says, you know, you, we have to find a new answer instead of a way. Yes. And um, that's another thing I keep bringing your book up, but I like where no matter what uh, political stripe you are, no matter what denomination, it's it's... It's inviting to everybody. Yeah, you know? because the what I've learned is, you know, uh, when I was younger, I was very active and, and politically active in social justice. And I ended up feeling like, you know, I didn't like the feeling that I was getting so entrenched that my way was the right way. You know, how can I say that? How can I, you know, I love dogs. So from my perspective, to eat a dog is horrendous. But I eat a cow. Yeah. You know, and cows are sweet animals. Pigs are incredibly intelligent. Yeah, my animals. wife's a vegan, and that's what she says. She, right. She was a vegetarian for most of her life. She became a vegan like five years ago, and that's what she says. If, you know, it's a social condition of, you know, you, you won't eat a dog or a cat per se, but. You know, you'll eat a cow or a pig. You right. know, there's, there's, you know. And and in Spain, the most delicious food I ate in Spain was octopus over and over again. And octopus are incredibly intelligent. Yeah. Incredibly intelligent. You can see them opening jars. Yes, and, I mean, like, unbelievable. Those, yeah. And they problem solve. It's yeah. amazing, right? And so I think to myself, who are you kidding? So you're going to go over to South Korea and you're going to say, you are wrong to eat dogs. So what do I do? First of all, where am I willing to be crumbled to try something different, you know, to look at my way? I mean, it is that thing, you know, you can't cast the first stone if you're, you know, how can I say my way is right? I think that's what people nowadays, that's the problem or the... The, the obstacle is people are so quick to cast aspersions, yes. be judgmental, and and people as accessible we are through technology or, or these devices, we are not listening. Right. You know. We're not listening. And the thing is, we have to be willing to see that, look, there is a lot of disturbed soil here. And, you know, that disturbed soil is either going to turn into some kind of a holocaust um, with, you know, a lot more horrible things happening or something has to give yeah something has to give you know at, at some point 
you know, the, what does it take for us to be willing to change the things that are so devastating in this world? And it takes all of us being willing to crumble, being willing to surrender, being willing to try something different. And that's really what the way of being lost was for me. You know, I'm not advocating that, you know, my book isn't, hey, everybody go out there, sell everything you own, <laughs> you know, hit the road, try and figure it out. Because it's not like this has provided me with a million answers. But what I can say is it's provided me with a million questions. Yeah. And those questions are really fruitful for me. Every day I have to ask myself the hard questions and say, how can I show up and learn how to listen to others, listen from my heart, be a better person in the world, give back more? And I started this because almost uh, seven years ago, exactly, I looked myself in the mirror and I thought, you're doing everything right and you're miserable. And now... And that's something I, I think a lot of people have in yes, this world. Yes, right. You have and the perfect job. You've done what yeah, society's told you to do. Yeah. And then you're, why aren't I happy? Why aren't I happy? And so, uh, you know, my <laughs> my bank account is way less happy than it used to be. <laughs> um, I don't. I have way less of a sense of certainty about what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. But I will not look at myself in the mirror at the end of this 10-year stint, which is what I said to myself. I don't want to be here 10 years from now feeling the same thing. I won't. Because I know that I've showed up to my life and I'm continuing to show up to the hard stuff. And you have to ask yourself questions every day. You know, I I travel with this little dog and every day I have to say, what's the best thing for her? Yeah. You know, it's not just like she has to come with me so that I feel better. Sometimes, sometimes it's better for her to, you know, stay where she is. Yeah. So every day I have to ask myself the hard questions and... and what are we going to do today, Al? That's our question. I think that's why I found the book so accessible, <laughs> is that it's just, you're so truthful in it, and, you're, and you, you do put yourself on the line there, and it's so brave. Mm. And then it really is for people, it, it is so accessible for people who have these, everybody seems to have these core problems, and it, you're right. getting past the, you know, that when, for me and my friends, we talk a lot about when you hit like my age in, in your 30s or late 30s, you start thinking about like, you know, happiness and you start to have like that midlife crisis. Right. And you think about like, I always look about my parents, my father, my mother was a nurse. My father worked on the railroad for 40 years. I'm like, were they happy what they were doing? Just right. doing that. And then, well, they had a family. They took, so and then you start, well, what's my responsibility versus making myself happier, right. being honest and truthful to, to myself. And that's why I found uh, the way of being lost so interesting and just so engaging because mm. you put yourself on the line and you did that. And that, that's so accessible for people. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, no, you know, it's just, it's, it's just so amazing, you know, and I found it so, so nice. Um, while I have you here, I'd love to ask you about um, a person who I don't think anybody sadly knows unless they're in the field anymore henry dreyfus oh yeah yeah I, I, when i the dinner we had at sardi's I, I i i talked your head off for like 10 minutes about him because you knew him briefly yes and i'm so fascinated by him I'm, i don't know if anybody knows who he is but i have his book the man in the brown suit and uh you know uh this is just in the weeds because who else can i ever talk to you about it but yeah no you, he was a very special person to yeah me. so henry dreyfus it's a it's a really interesting thing there was he's no so influential yes i i give a talk called from lipsticks to locomotives and it's about how industrial design created the view of america that really it ha was the the biggest form of advertisement for american as a superpower because Industrial design didn't exist until the late 20s. Yeah. And there was no... So basically, companies would put things out, and they sold it based on its function, not its form. And some of these things were ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so people, you know, they wanted their thing that they were going to have in their house to look good. They were. It was great that it kept the, you know, the 
the food cold or whatever, but it was ugly. It didn't go with their decor. So the field of industrial design was essentially created by four men. And one of them was Henry Dreyfus. And probably the two most famous men were Raymond Lowy, who was a Frenchman who came to the United States, and Henry Dreyfus. And they were two complete and polar opposites. Raymond Lowy was the showman, and he he designed um, like the Coca-Cola bottle and Air Force One and a lot of you know cars with fins. Yeah. And he was a, a showman. And uh, <laughs> and Henry Dreyfus was somebody who was very much about the form following the function. Yeah. And he was a pragmatist. And he ate at the same table in the Oak Room of the Plaza every single day. He always wore a brown suit. He, uh, he married uh, a woman named Doris, who was his wife and business partner, kind of like Charles and Ray Eames. Yeah. And, and he... Uh, designed the John Deere tractor, the Bell thermostat, the Princess phone, the Polaroid camera, the 20th Century Limited, which is widely regarded as one of the most beautiful yeah, locomotives. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's so many Ever. things that he designed from, like you said, the Princess phone to, yeah. the, to the regular, I forget, the bigger phone. Yeah. Like you said, the tractor, I mean, uh, the, the thermostat the that thermostat, we know and love yeah. that we see now that I guess Nest is almost, yes. you know, copying. It's just all these things that we, we deal with on a daily basis. Yes. Or, for almost a century haven't changed because he was so innovating yeah. by his design. My favorite story about Henry Dreyfus, so so my dad and mom were great friends with him. Yeah. And we spent every Thanksgiving with him. His children were much older than I was. My parents and, and Doris and Henry were closest in age. They were older. But his children's children were my age. So his grandchildren were my age, and I was sort of regarded as one of the grandchildren. We would spend every Thanksgiving together. They were the first adults that ever asked me to call them by their first names, call us Henry and Doris, you know. Hi. Hi, babe. Hey, babe. Hi. Babe's and so, paying to Kaylee over to say, what's hi, going on? Hi. Hi. You are so good looking. And so... Um, they would teach us something every Thanksgiving. You know, one year he made uh, giraffes and, and different animals from Africa out of, you know, paper bags from a market. It was really, really cool. And so I, I loved learning from him. And so when the Cooper Hewitt, it, as it was called in those days, did the show, Man in the Brown Suit, I immediately went and I bought the book and I learned everything I could about him. And I, and I began um, talking about the importance of industrial design as sort of the message of what America is as it was conveyed to the world but my favorite Henry Dreyfus story because it's something I've learned from he was uh, this company a movie theater company put in this big deluxe movie palace in some farm town in like you know Iowa or something yeah and it was gorgeous Pure, everything yeah. you know right <laughs> yeah. gorgeous gorgeous and nobody was going they were all going to the old movie theater and here they put all this money creating this movie palace and no one was going and so they hired Henry Dreyfus as a very young man to go out and figure out what they'd done wrong and so Henry Dreyfus decided that what he would do is just go and observe. So he went and he just positioned himself outside the movie theater and he was watching the people who were walking down the street of this town. And they were all, you know, people who were working people, most of whom were farmers who'd come into town. So they were people like wearing their overalls and their work boots or whatever. And he watched that as they got to the movie theater, they would walk around. The new one. The new one, the fancy one. They would walk around the red carpet so as not to dirty it. Wow. And what th he told them was they had 
not understood who their audience was. They'd made it too fancy. So they immediately changed the carpet and then everybody flocked to the movie theater. They loved the comfort. They loved the beauty. They didn't want to sully it. You know, it's like they were from that era where people put plastic on their living room sofa (laughs) so that you didn't ruin the good furniture and then nobody ever sat in it, right? Or we all, you know, now I think people have kitchen tables more than dining room tables, but those formal dining room tables that nobody ever eats at, right? So he understood that. And from Yeah, and from then on, that was his principle of design, that design has to be for the end user. You know, it has to be something that reflects who is using it. It's so fascinating, and I find him so influential. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just, it's really... It's one of those things where you could take a filmmaker or, uh, you know, you're talking, say, the Beatles who influenced us. Uh, a guy like him really influenced every person's life. And we yeah. don't realize even today how we're still touched by him. Yeah. But I just, because you were here, I wanted to, to, yeah, to no, I geek him. out for a minute. And there's, it's actually a really beautiful story. So at the end of his life, his wife, Doris, was diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. And they realized it was terminal. And they committed suicide together. Yeah. Uh, they killed, you know, they, they did it in a garage. In carbon monoxide. Carbon, yeah. In the car. In the car. And of course, he was a designer, so he figured out how to make it as, you know, and they were together. And I remember that we were in, uh, I was sitting in the back of my parents' car with my parents, and I saw this newspaper clipping that said, and I was, I think, 10 years old, and it said something about Henry and Doris. And I remember um, reading it and reading that. And then my mother saw me reading it, and she saw, did she said, did you read that? And I said, no, like I lied, because I knew she wouldn't want me to know that. And so then she told me that they had died, but she didn't tell me how, but I knew because I'd read it. Yeah. And I think she thought it would freak me out that, some, that people would kill themselves. But, you know, there's very few people you meet, very few couples you meet who you really get a sense of the deep love and partnership that they have. Yeah, one can't survive. They're almost yeah. one being and after a while. And I knew that. Yeah. And so to me, I, it didn't scare me at all because it felt true for them. Yeah. It was like they knew who they were and who, you know, it wasn't like he didn't have years more that he could have contributed to the world of design, but he knew who he was and he knew what he needed to do. And and the fact that he did that with her, it's again, not like that's what I'm advocating that people should do, yeah. but it was right for them. It's, it's interesting because I've talked to... Um, the, the famed pathologist Michael Bodden a lot. Mm. And he talked about, um, I guess in the early 70s, and it could be that generation that you would get a lot of deaths who elderly people, one would would be diagnosed with a terminal illness. Right. And uh, one way they would do it would be uh, over the bathroom door and they'd both, you know. Oh, wow. Almost with a, hang themselves and use each other's weight. Wow. You know, he would say that was a thing. Oh my gosh, I never heard that. You know, wow. and, and, and I relate to him the, the Dreyfus story because I had known that from reading it in your Vincent Price, your father's yeah. biography. And it just, I guess, you know, me, I don't know if that was, you know, if that was a thing, but do you understand that some people are so connected? You yeah. know, or you always hear, or you hear the story that like, you know, somebody's passed away and then the other one passes away within a day or hours. A- absolutely, you know? yes. I read this really interesting story. Uh, the, his obituary was in the Times, oh, maybe about a month ago, Eugene Thaw, okay. who was this amazing art collector. And uh, and Claire was his wife. I knew both of them. Amazing. He wrote the Jackson Pollock, you know, catalog raisonné. So she died in June and he died in January. And... The reason he stayed alive, it was clear to everybody, is because he had a show at the Morgan Library. Wow. And she and he were, you know, he became a collector in many ways because of her. But before that, he'd been an art dealer, an art historian, and they were so connected. And so 
he literally died like two weeks before his show ended because his whole goal was to get that show up because it was a tribute to them and their life as collectors. And so... It's amazing it, when you hear stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and you that know you can, it was true. Yeah. You know, you know that he he didn't really want to stay alive that much longer, but he was going to do that because that was about them. And once that was done, he wanted to join and, her. And that touches me. I had a very good friend of mine who uh, whose father passed away, and you always hear he had pancreatic cancer, that there's always that last bout of energy. Mm. And you talked about that with your when your mother passed, yeah. she called you, or yeah. even with your father yep. the day before. You know, it's, yeah. And it's, it's interesting that... or. Like we were just talking about people who get the energy to, to, to go on for a purpose. Right. They're able to do that. And then, then you know, and it's, right. uh, I don't know what kind of road we're going down, but yeah, it's, 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 it's just, very it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, people's stories, you know, I think the thing is everybody's always so concerned, you know, parents are always so concerned that their children have the right messages. But to me, you know, the, the most right message we can give to any child is that when people are doing what's authentic to them, um, there's something you know, really true that goes out into the world. And as that goes a message. back to the book. Yeah. yeah. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. And I think people, you know, worry about what that is. Well, is somebody who's inflicting violence in some way or doing something horrible? Is that, is, is that being true to themselves? N- no. You know, uh, one of the gifts of becoming involved with the horror community is these people who many people think of are sc- as scary because they're pierced and tattooed and have spiky hair and, you know, they look like goths and they, mm. you They know, come to the convention co- in cosplay co- dressed right, up co- or yeah, say. scary things, yeah. right? And, you know, to me, the horror fans are the gentlest people in the world and to come to the conventions is a way of um, recognizing that we all carry around these scary, horrible things inside of us. And when we have, you know, my dad used to say that horror movies were a way of of sort of a, having catharsis for people, a way of getting out um, in, in the safety of a dark room, the things that they can't say in life. You know, today, every parent in America has to send their child to school. Yeah. And nobody feels safe yeah. anymore. No one feels safe It's anymore. so weird even for me growing up. Uh, I was a product of the 80s. And to think that when I was little, I'd get on a bike with my friend. I'd get home from school. My parents say, be home by dark or dinner. Right. And uh, we'd go out and we'd, you know, no cell phones, no nothing. We'd go out and they would just hope we'd get home by time. And, right. You know, and now I can, ne- and no helmets, you right. know, no pads, you know. Right. You, you know, you'd, you'd fall off a bike, you'd mess yourself up and, you know. Right. And now it's it just seems so like, you know, I talk to people who, have children and they're like they don't even go out like kid they have to organize play dates yeah and the kids hang out inside and they don't yeah. go out or they're just even when they're inside they're on the computer yeah. on the internet on video games and it's so odd just even like you're saying this it's there's so much trepidation to just let your kid out yes and go to the park or, or yes. you know just just the i don't know the evil or i i would think that it's always been here but i don't know it's suddenly but it's so much it's so much more us. prevalent yeah. right and everybody's so scared and so you know the thing is that i feel like we're not there's no place for us to put that fear so everybody squelches it yeah you know and and you read about uh, my friend who i'm staying with works with foster kids here in well, in Yonkers, and you know, Yonkers is one of the worst counties in in New York. I think it is the worst county in New York State for you know horrendous things happening. Yeah, because it's so system. big. There's yeah, there's yeah. nice areas and there's bad areas. Yeah. yeah, and so the stories you know that that she has to hear and deal with are just things that are unimaginable, and and you know, and yet. 
there's whole sectors of the population that this is every day of their lives. Yeah. And at some point, you know, how can we create a world where there's a safe place for everybody to be able to deal with all the things that they're scared yeah. of? And that's why we're all, every movie that's out there is about something scary and apocalyptic. Because yeah. in a way, that's what's happening in yeah. the world. I mean, we have a soap opera on TV that's about zombies. Right. It's, it's just, I remember in the 80s, horror movies for me were scary, but then there was like the almost X-rated, like the zombie right. movies, the George Romero movies. were. So, I, my parents won't let me rent that. It's so graphic. It's so right. bloody. And then you look now, it's that's commonplace on television. Right. You know, you can, you can your child can turn on cable and watch yeah. that so it's it's yeah a, a, that's so surprising um <laughs> and your 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 favorite f- movie of your father's is laura yeah yeah I and, and i I'm love otto preminger amazing you yeah. know it, it's such a great film yeah um and uh, i do i i find myself enjoying a lot of the b-sides like I'm, he's great in your father in horror movies but just there's so many other movies that he was doing like in the in the late 40s and stuff and 50s that are just so yeah. amazing yeah. you know i mean i love him in ten commandments you know him and edward g robinson and the, yeah. the, the dichotomy there such you know i know ridiculous casting right like either of them could ever be egyptian oh, i thought but, it was great but it was fabulous <laughs> exactly. right he, he cuts the mustache off <laughs> right. and you know yeah and i um i know um you and uh, your father and Edward G. Robinson had a, a great relationship, mm-hmm. and it's there's so much I'd love to talk to you about uh, about him, but we're running out of time. Um, uh, I also like see it's me. It's, it's so weird. It's like I like to listen to I ha- I've found his uh, cooking tutorials, like the the Beverly Hills Cookbook series. Yeah, and there's nothing more like cathartic for me than just to like put him on on my commute. You know, I'll walk to the train, get on the train, and he'll tell me how to like do this or that. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, you know, that's you know, or have ragu sauces, you that. know. And it's just so, it's just so funny, or just even, even the, the uh, era of, I guess, uh, in the '70s of him doing those like uh, occult. Uh, you know, uh, horror recordings, right. the, the, the witches and the yes, you know, goblins and ghouls, yeah, and yeah. it's so good, and it's just so you know, it's it's like uh, I'm such a fan of old radio. And uh, to hear like all the old suspense and the him on the saint uh, and just all those things that it, it seems like particularly old radio, um, old fashioned radio seems just like such a forgotten art, a theater of the mind. Yeah. And those old plays that are so accessible, you can find them on YouTube or whatever the you know of of, of him doing like Three Skeleton Key or or the Dragonwick or uh, Angel Street, which turns into Gaslight. You know, just hearing those dramatizations. You know, you close your eyes and it's it's better than any audiobook you'll ever no, read, you know, or even a movie, you know, so. My dad always said that our imaginations are, are so much richer than anything we ever can see. Yeah. You know, of course, what we see is, is you know, the product of someone's imagination, but even then, yeah. we take it another level up. Of so. course. And uh, before we go, I know... Uh, he did a, a, a magnificent play of Oscar Wilde, the version yes. of the lights, and there is a bootleg copy of it out there. Audio, you can listen audio, to it. Audio, yes. And I've listened to it, and it's so amazing. I mean, it's a it's a crappy recording, but if you're used to like listening to bootleg concert shows, like I have growing up, it's perfectly fine. And just like even like him like doing like the uh, the Harlot House, you know, yeah. just all it's in in that. That play is so amazing, and I like how you talked about at the time him doing it. It was just so groundbreaking and so yeah, you know. what an amazing! It was the best thing I ever saw him do. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, no, he, you know, I feel I feel so fortunate. It's a, you know, it's it's such a gift to have grown up with a father who, who gave me so so much, but. I also grew up with a mother and a stepmother who gave me so much as well, you know, in, in maybe a, needed a little more unpacking, yeah. but still such a, I was very fortunate and I feel, I, I don't think I could be 
intentionally homeless if I didn't have such a rich foundation. Yeah. You know, I, I the, this multi-layered foundation of, of so many things that they gave me. And, um, and so I feel really, really grateful that um, I have to take a picture of you. I feel grateful for the parents that I, I have. I have to take this picture because my m- the podcast interview. <laughs> yeah, I've got Allie. Yes. Oh, look at her. She's Allie. tired now. She's 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 run herself out. She's like, we're done. We're gonna need naps soon. <laughs> um, do you ever see yourself? And I don't want to call it like an exorcism, but you kind of like um, you know, like you said, unpacking the the feelings of of your mother and coming to terms with stuff, right. or your father and just everything going on. And and do you f- ever see yourself? Um, maybe putting your roots down again sometime soon or I mean you're, tra- you're traveling but you know I thought I would know what I wanted to do at the end of the two years and the two years will be over in May but I know I'm going to be on the road yeah. for the, this whole year and you've embraced um, that the, the, yeah, yeah you know and I have no idea really what I'm doing <laughs> uh, but I'm just putting one foot in front of the other and you know I was thinking about this because so many of us grow up Good thinking girl. that there's some sort of certainty um, that if we do something the right way, if we get the right job, if we belong to the right political party, if we belong to the right church, if we belong to the you know right uh, club or whatever, that we'll have this sense of safety. And yet, to me, the greatest sense of safety has come, and the greatest sense of peace has come from embracing the mystery. And I feel so much m- more free and more at peace being able to say, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know is so empowering because really, at the end of the day, like what do we really know you know the things that we know are are very concrete but they're not certain we know we know how to love yeah but what that's going to look like we don't know yeah. right only the future is certain yes <laughs> yeah. exactly well thank you so much for stopping is, by and, and sleeping thank over you, thank you thank <laughs> yeah. you for inviting me and Allie to the sleepover Allie did you have fun at the sleepover <laughs> yeah. yes she, <laughs> she did. did she had so much fun at the sleepover and she's going to take all the toys <laughs> with her home and all that I want to see her play with the little <laughs> yeah, with, the, with, the, with yeah. the cat thing uh, we'd love to have you back soon I'd love to talk to you thank more you. and bore I, you I uh, would at nauseum about your father I would love it so thank you so much thank and you. Allie thank you so much you want to say thank you say thanks say thank you Can you say thanks? There we go. (laughs) Do you remember a time when sleeping on the floor with your friends wouldn't have been considered weird? The management of this website invites you to a new dimension in podcasting. An experience so fun, it can only be compared to a childhood sleepover. It's not just about horror. Tom Atkins proves that any man is leading man material. <laughs> it's not just about action. If you're going to rank Van Damme movies... Yeah, it's up there. i put it top five for sure. It's not just about comedy. There's no other person in the world that loves Weekend at Bernie's more than you. It's not just about science fiction. And you scrim with like... A beautiful comb over. It's about nostalgia. Can you survive the Saturday night movie sleepover? It's not a movie. It's a podcast about movies. You can follow Saturday night movie sleepovers at saturdaysleepovers.podwits.com on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and Player FM.